0: Welcome to Everyday Buddhism, making every day better by applying the proven tools found in Buddhist concepts. Hello and welcome to episode 7 of Everyday Buddhism, making every day better. Now today I'm going to move on with our look at the Eightfold Path, from right intention, or how to be less of a jerk, to right speech, which I've subtitled, Zip It. (laughs) Before I jump into it, though, I wanted to share how thrilled I am with the positive responses to this podcast. I've received wonderful comments on my website and on podcast platforms, and I've received awesome reviews and five-star ratings on the iTunes Apple Music platform. So if you like this podcast, I would love it if you would write a quick review, give it a rating on the iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite podcast platform. You know, the ratings and the reviews are what make the podcast visible to others who wouldn't have known about it otherwise. And if you believe like I do that the tips and tricks I share every week are helpful for everyone, it would be awesome if you could do your part to make this podcast more visible. Just this, fri- just this Friday, I-, I received a comment from a new listener, Christine, who said, there are so many people who need these messages. I agree, Christine, and I- that's why I do this work. So thank you, and thank you to everybody who's welcomed me so warmly to you know, the world of podcasting. Another little bit of information before I get to the subject of right speech is to let you know that my intention is to get a new podcast released once a week. As you may have noticed, it isn't always on the same day, and it isn't always within seven days. But it's close enough for podcasting, right? We used to say that in broadcasting, yeah, close enough for broadcasting. But it's still my intention to release a new one every week. So I hope you follow or subscribe So that new episodes get downloaded automatically to your phone or your tablet or your computer. So, okay, with that bit of housekeeping out of the way, onward to Right Speech. So, you know what's ironic? This show on Right Speech, which I have subtitles as Zip It, I think could possibly be my longest episode. Or at least one of my longest episodes. I have so many notes. You know, you think right view and right intention were a challenge? Right speech is the most difficult of all. You know, not difficult to understand, but difficult to accomplish. Because it is the most difficult to accomplish, I truly think it is our most important daily practice. You know, if a thing is hard, it means you need to work on it. Especially in this age of speech at the speed of internet connectivity you know, um, the Internet has s- instant speed of your words thrown around like the empty promises of a politician in an election year. Although I think it's even worse than that. I think they're thrown around without a second thought. It's that old lizard brain, lizard brain description of the amygdala I talked about in other episodes. So let's, let's reflect for a minute. Other than thinking... What do you spend the most time doing, you know, in your active waking hours? Talking. We're always talking. Even when we're listening, we're talking, mentally creating our responses. You know, I view my thoughts as speech as well. I'm not sure about you, but I tell myself stories about myself and about other people and what i'm going to say and what they said and what i should have said it's like a constant narrative running in the head and back before the internet which some of you may not even remember we still talked all the time gossiping with our coworkers and neighbors but now now with texting and the endless social media forums it's a constant stream of yep 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 sharing our opinion of everything with everyone. This constant social media opinionating always reminds me of Andy Warhol's 15 Minutes of Fame. You know, he said that back in 1968, he said, In the future, everyone will be world famous for 15 minutes. I think we've all had way more than our 15 minutes of fame thanks to the internet, thanks to social media. It's like we really think everyone needs to or is waiting for my opinion on whatever. The weather, Trump and Russia, the GOP, the Democrats, the economy, tariffs, national anthem protests, gun violence, on and on and on. You know, whenever I'm tempted to spout off on something like that, I stop and say, Really? Who cares what you think? You know, like when were we all meteorologists or political analysts or sociologists or psychologists? You know, we seem to think we have some sort of an informed opinion on everything. So my stop mantra is a combination of what I just said. Who cares what you think? And what do you really know about this subject, whatever it is, fill in the blank, anyway? So... Now I say, these are my stop-before-you-spout mantras. But But before you get me wrong, and get the wrong idea that these work to stop me, they work to have me zip it, but they don't always work. I still spout. And I must admit here, I'm feeling a little weird sense- of hypocrisy talking about this on a podcast featuring me ugh but as a reminder this podcast is entitled everyday buddhism i am not a buddhist expert i am not a particularly good buddhist practitioner i'm just sharing my per- personal experience using buddhist inspired tips and tricks to make my life a little easier and a little happier And that, therefore, hopefully, will translate to you trying them out and seeing if it works for you. You know, last year I took a personal vow to not share my opinion about anything on the internet, unless it was a positive, inspiring message. I took the same vow a few years before, also probably in an election post-election period. The first time, you know, actually, the fact that I've taken this vow twice can kind of give you a hint on how well it's worked sometimes. But the first time I made the vow about four years ago or so, I didn't do very good. Now, but the second time last year, I did much better. And I've stuck to, you know, keeping it zipped. Most of the time anyway. And when I screw up, I'm generally disgusted with myself. The good thing, though is that I'm pretty quick in either stopping or self-correcting now. It's like one of my teachers always said, you can check to see if your practice is working by looking at the length of time between having a thought about something and then acting on it with your behavior, your speech. When you first start practicing, the time span could be a day or longer before you feel regret or disgust or wow I shouldn't have done that but it gets shorter and shorter if you stick to the practice you know the 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 sort of I think my teacher used to say you know we're shooting for like a second here I mean I haven't gotten that close but you know if I can get within a minute or two I'm pretty happy if I can get within a few minutes I'm pretty happy if I can get within an hour I'm pretty happy you know I just don't want to make it so that I say it and then regret it next day So another thing that comes from my Buddhist background in thinking about right speech is the concept of the value of listening as being more important than speech. And this in Buddhist legend mythology is indicated by the fact that uh, we have two ears and only one mouth, I think about that a lot, and also, when I first started practicing in the Tibetan tradition at a local Tibetan Buddhist center, it was pointed out to me how the representations of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas in art, sculpture, whatever, have these huge ears, very large ears, and really kind of tiny mouths, It's seemingly out of proportion, I think, to those of us that look at them from our current artistic standards. Check it out sometime. Get on Google, do a search for Buddhist and Bodhisattva images, and wow, look at those ears. Interesting, huh? If our current culture was represented that way, we would look like emoticons. All mouth and no ears. Isn't that weird? Buddha images, Bodhisattva images, have these huge ears, emoticons don't have ears at all. Interesting. I don't know what to make of it, but I just think that's an interesting little tidbit. So, back to speech, you know, language is a conceptualization. And by its nature, it discriminates, separates, labels, and judges. Every time we talk, Speech conceptualizes external things, then cements or reifies your internal expression into a self-existent external thing by making it like something. So it then gets categorized or becomes a type rather than just an experience, a moment where circumstances coincide to produce a feeling or an event. No, no, no. We've gotta we've gotta reify it. We have to make it solid. You know, you ever notice when you ever go anywhere anymore, everybody's taking pictures of everything. You know, I, I agree it's great to to remember you know lovely things that you experience in your day-to-day or on your nature walks or on vacation. But boy, this this I think this picture taking thing we have Keeps us away from the actual experience of the thing we're experiencing, you know. I have the urge too. We were at the beach on Friday, beautiful day, lots of wind, heavy waves, and it. I dragged my little sand beach bench. You know, Renee and I d- dragged our benches into the water. I'm not a bench. Our, um, you know, chairs into the water. And, The waves were washing over us. And of course, you know, you had to take your phone off and your watch off and your Fitbit off and all those things we depend on. And there were so many interesting things I wanted to take pictures of. And I realized it was just this this constant impulse. See something, take a picture of it, make it stop. Instead of just being in the experience. I think that's part of our problem. We want to turn something into something else rather than just being the thing, experiencing the thing. You know, my spouse says this about speech and about labeling things or putting them into boxes. She says, anything after the words, I am, is a lie. That's true, isn't it? And if practiced, it is the most direct practice of right view and right speech possible. Because you are entirely empty of anything after I am in the present moment. And really, that's it. The present moment. That's the whole practice of the now. That's the pras- practice of life. What are you now? Well, you could say, I'm cold, or I'm hot, or I'm mad, or I have an itch, or my ear aches or whatever. But really, saying that is putting an experience maybe you just had onto what you are now. Or if you're fearful, experience of what you're fearful of in the future onto what you are now. But in reality reality, you just are. You know, speech as we use it is primarily an offensive weapon of the ego. Or it's defensive armor, if you will. Speech is an absolute and direct exp- expression of grasping to a sense of self, to a discrete identity, Pre- promoting this meanness with our words and further reinforcing our own view of separateness and disconnection from the happiness and suffering of others. You know, every time we hear ourselves talk about what is happening to me we shore up that false division between ourselves and others. When we are driven to speak, most of the time, or much of the time, the impulse that drives the speech is sometimes, or most of the time, I really think, a state of mind that is not positive and does not hold right intention or right view. We have all had the experience of feeling hurt by something Someone did or said to you, and then you feel this absolute rushing need to tell someone about it immediately. Which, of course, what does that do? It focuses the mind of the speaker and the listener, in other words, the person you're complaining, you the complainer and the person you're complaining to, um, on the other person, the bad person. And then that builds the concept of you as a good person, who was wronged, and now is absolutely justified in your use of wrong speech. Many Dharma teachers instruct their students in the application of right speech by encouraging them to never talk about anyone, good or bad, if that person is not there to hear. Hmm. Hmm if you try i think that makes a lot of sense because if you try to do that as a practice you will quickly observe that we spend far too much time talking about people who aren't with us at the moment and every time we do we are alienating ourselves from the present moment so because if the person is not there right then we must be talking about something in the past And probably alienating ourselves from right intention because we're conceptualizing this person. We're painting a picture with words based on our thoughts of the person or our thoughts of the experience we had with that person rather than the actual causal experience because our thoughts came after. The concept of right speech is not only Buddhist advice, but it's found in all great teachings. You know, Jesus said that it isn't what goes into your mouth that defiles you, but what comes out of your mouth that defiles you. And Don Miguel Ruiz, who wrote, the ancient, uh, tol- wrote about the ancient Toltec wisdom in his book, The Four Agreements, said, quote, If we can see it is our agreements which rule our life, and we don't like the dream of our life, then we need to change the agreements. So his agreements were, number one, be impeccable with your word. Number two, don't take anything personally. Number three, don't make assumptions. And number four, always do your best. Now, you got to notice that that impeccable with your word is the first agreement. Don Miguel Ruiz calls it the most important and the most difficult agreement to honor. He says about your word or speech is that it's the creative power, your creative power. It's a force, he says, that creates the events in your life. And he says it's with that force that we actually cast spells on ourselves and each other with our word. I totally get that because if we say if we say enough times this person is this way, then we can't ever see them in another way because we've solidified or reified, as I said before, boxed that person into this caricature of this this kind of person, okay, this person is judgmental, and and I don't want to deal with them, or this person is, uh, is, uh, I keep thinking of political references, which I really shouldn't use, but hey, it's so much in our culture, so this person is a Trumpster, right, and uh, you'll never, you'll never, he's not worth talking to, or whatever, whatever we're doing, we are Fixing them as this thing that's really not that person because that person's changing it every minute. So, now that I've got your attention about the importance of right speech and how important this third path of the Eightfold Path is, I think it's time for me to come clean. This is the most difficult of the right practices for me to master. You know, when I was in third grade, I won the Chatty Cathy Award. And unless you're my age, you probably don't even get this reference to Chatty Cathy. Chatty Cathy was a doll made by Mattel in the late well, late 50s, I think, early 1960s. Using the cutting-edge technology of the time, like a record, a phonographic record inside the doll and a string that you pulled... To make that needle go over that record. If you pulled the string on her back, she talked. Despite the fact, you know, her lips never actually really moved. But she talked. Or the record talked. And said stuff like, I love you. I hurt myself. Please take me with you. Or let's play school. Or may I have a cookie. You know, all those really profound things. (laughs) Anyway, about my award... It wasn't a good thing at all. I was talking in class, and the teacher made me wear a sign all day. And she insisted and ordered me to wear it all the way home. And I was a walker, you know. I didn't get on the bus, so I had to walk home. And so, therefore, everyone could see my sign as I walked through town. The sign said, Chatty Cathy. You know, looking back, I think that teacher wasn't exhibiting skillful means in ostracizing a student by wearing a sign all the way home. But, you know, it did have an effect on me. I didn't know what wrong speech was at the time, but I do remember thinking that I probably talked too much. I was using wrong speech as that third grader. Wrong speech in the fact that it was too much speech, and it was idle speech. And I continue to use wrong speech every day, I'm sure, and probably many times a day. Before you think that I lie or swear constantly, I would point out that it is much more subtle than that. And once I completely come clean with you, you might see how much you have to confess yourself. So, my first confession is this. As the Chatty Cathy Award sort of pre-indicated of my inclinations even into adulthood, I'm a talker. Well, here I am doing a podcast. I guess I'm a talker. I love to talk, and it comes quite naturally in all situations with all people. And you know, that can be a very good thing. I can make pleasant conversation with almost anyone. But sometimes I think I should shut up. Sometimes I think I should zip it. My mother told me when I was young that I inherited her, her gift of gab, and she did have a gift of gab. My father, though, used to comment, you sure can talk. As you see, to some, this talking is a gift, to others, a questionable trait. Now, how do we discipline our talking? Well, there's a set of 10 vows in Buddhism, referred to as the 10 non-virtues or the freedom vows. They are grouped by the three gateways. In other words, gateways meaning your gateways of your behavior, which would be body, speech, and mind. Of the ten, then, three are related to the body, three are related to the mind, but four are related to the speech. The four things that you should watch for when trying to practice right speech are these. And they're all written as a, as a refrain or restrain yourself. So it's refrain from lying, refrain from divisive talk, Refrain from harsh words and refrain from idle talk. Now, right speech is truthful, gentle, peaceful, and meaningful. As I detail how easy it is not to be truthful, gentle, peaceful, and meaningful in your speech, I'll continue to make my public confessions. Being truthful in an impeccable way is a lot more difficult than, that, than just not telling a lie. Truthful speech means not just not lying, but not even giving someone, or our own selves, the wrong impression. We do that all the time. We purposely give people impressions that we're more in control, less fearful, more positive, happier, healthier, whatever, and how do we do that? We do it with our words. We carefully leave words out or choose particular words to have a certain effect. We don't even think about it. It's natural. It's an instinct, I would say. But it is really lying, isn't it? We tell stories that are based on grasping to outcomes we want. We tell stories to ourselves and others. Either way, it's lying. I know I manipulate impressions, I pretend to understand what someone is explaining to me when I'm really hopelessly confused. So what's the harm in that, right? My intention is good, right? The harm is that it's based on wrong view and wrong intention. The foundation of the rest of the behaviors that are added on, which we're working on now, which is right speech. So every time we purposely leave an impression or utter a word that is not totally, impeccably true. We are testifying to sort of our belief or our view in externals, our belief in dual concepts as truth. That's wrong view. Because do I really believe that if I pretend to know something when this person's telling me something and I'm helplessly confused, then my circumstances or my life will change, will act in response to the way I acted as if I knew something but I really didn't, it's ridiculous. Circumstances result from true causes, not deliberate misimpressions. The conditions that result from deliberate misspeaking will be the conditions corresponding to the truth, but also the conditions corresponding to your deliberate act of misinforming. And that is obviously wrong intention. Because every time you allow someone to have the wrong impression about you, your intention was what? To confuse? To lie? You know, it really doesn't seem like such a big deal. I get it. But every little deal makes you believe that the truth isn't important. It's a subtle sort of buying into or or, or conditioning of your mind that the truth being impeccable with your word really isn't important, and every little deal makes you think so much that it's not important that the little deals kind of stretch out and to get get to be bigger and bigger until they're not little deals anymore. Sure, you can fool people; they won't know the difference, nor will they care probably. But as one of my teachers said, and I'll, this is this is critical for me in. Thinking about sort of checking my behaviors is if you're going to do something you know is wrong, you might as well do it with the door open because you are the one creating your own karma. It's not about being caught by some external judge. Okay, then the next practice is to refrain from divisive talk and harsh words which means to use gentle speech. So we had the first one, refraining from lying. Now we're refraining from divisive talk and harsh words, but using instead gentle speech. So what is gentle speech? It's refraining from harsh, critical, judgmental, impatient, and annoyed speech. And boy, can I be impatient and annoyed and critical and judgmental. I don't think I'm harsh so much anymore but I think I got the rest covered half the time. You know, like my social media vow. In making slips, I noticed that it wasn't that I posted blatantly hateful comments or aggressive, in-your-face quote sharing, but those little subtle ones that proudly declare me as something or waive my allegiance or belief in something that, at the same time, sarcastically pokes fun at the other side, quote-unquote, other side. Yet I think those are even worse than, you know, harsh, in-your-face, calling out. The subtle stuff, I think, is even worse because it masquerades as harmless. It masquerades as a harmless support for a cause and then, therefore, consequently, a stand against a cause. And it seduces you, yourself, me, into thinking that what I'm doing isn't really divisive, but informative. And at the same time, there's this tiny tinge of smug self-righteousness you feel when you post it, right? What is that? I think it is a rejoicing in your otherness. We make others out of people who don't think like us don't believe like us, don't live like us, don't love like us. Yet, I am always someone else's other. It is a self-perpetuating misadventure that divides acquaintances, friends, family members, churches, states, countries, and the world. And you know, as much as I love the internet, Facebook, social media in general, those channels can be particularly conducive to participating in acts of mindless divisiveness. Every time we share a strongly one-sided political or religious link to a news article or an editorial or a blog, we are declaring we are something. We stand for something. And therefore, we create that pretty obvious border between everybody else who doesn't stand for that granted sometimes you just have to share some positive bit of news that you're happy about or something that is truly informative i think that's the great thing and one of the joys about facebook you know being able to rejoice in others happiness as long as it's not information you are sharing to change others minds to quote unquote your side. But do we have to keep waving our flags of belonging over and over again? It seems to me, and I am guilty of this, that this is nothing other than the basest of tribal behavior, which by its nature is dualistic and divisive. Let's face it, after one or two of these postings, most of our Facebook friends already know how we feel about things, and what side we're on. After that, aren't we really only trying to push it in the faces of our friends who don't share our beliefs? Aren't we really rubbing it in? I am particularly offended by the divisive nature of those poke fun at postings I see routinely on Facebook. These are the ones sharing the latest political or religious bashing, Jokes, satires, cartoons, and videos from late-night talk, comedy, wherever. You know, I might even find them funny and giggle, if I am on the right side. But if not, it feels downright mean-spirited. Facebook, internet chat groups, social media make it very easy to be snarky, and even downright abusive in ways we wouldn't dream of doing on a face-to-face or phone basis. Now, I think we could all agree that we'd never tell a Christian joke to someone we know is an evangelical Christian at a dinner party or a business meeting. Yet do we even stop to think that that's what we're doing with some of the things we post on Facebook? Zen Shin Michael Hedderly wrote about this phenomena in an article in the winter 2009 Tricycle magazine called Dharma Wars. He quoted John Suller, a psychology professor at Rider University, who says that the Internet users, he says that Internet users readily fall prey to what Suller calls the, quote, online disinhibition effect, unquote. Seller says the medium itself drives you to act out in ways you normally wouldn't because, quote, people experience their computers and online environments as extensions of their selves, extensions of their minds. And therefore, they feel free to project these inner dialogues into exchanges with others, unquote. You know, I've witnessed this very thing myself. You know, this past election season and the year after and even earlier debates over the Supreme Court's ruling on the Affordable Care Act or same-sex marriage, you know, people who I wouldn't have expected to reacted in angry and vocal ways, surprising me. Even if they didn't always directly commented, they posted very angry links or gave likes to aggressive, sarcastic, and angry thoughts on both sides. You know, it made me question my own posting behavior and encouraged me to renew that vow. To question each thing I'm tempted to post or like before I do post or like it. As a test to see if it is something I would say directly and face-to-face to anyone or anyone that I've allowed to view my post, any of my friend list. Since I've renewed that vow, I've stopped myself many times. Think about it. And you know, most importantly, I think reflecting on words you use that could offend or make others feel uncomfortable is the best way to go about this. I have a feeling that your reaction to um, these refrains I'm talking about, maybe that it doesn't apply to me because you're not harsh, you're not critical. You know, I'd probably think that if I was listening to this talk, but I have another confession to make. I do use non-gentle speech quite regularly. One of my Buddhist teachers admits to this problem. He, he says it's, he actually, it's actually hard to find anyone that doesn't occasionally utter a bad word. You know, there's lots of them. And it's, you know, these days it's culturally accepted to use them. And if you work in a normal Western work environment, it's even more likely that one of these has found its way into your regular vocabulary. For many years, I worked in broadcasting and television as an engineer. I was one of the first women engineers, and I found myself at the age of 19 working among men. Now, I grew up with brothers, so it was a household of men. But, you know, the work environment is very different than a family. So my vocabulary got very colorful, and it has taken me many years to try to break the habit. You know, 19 was a long time ago for me. The good news then is I'm getting better at it. I'm getting better at breaking the habit. I should be after all these years, but I'm still not perfect. But practice does help. My teacher admitted to using questionable speech as a part of his teaching presentations, too. And I, too, admit that those words fly out of my mouth when I'm presenting and when I'm going for effect. But why? Think about it the next time. Ask yourself, is this really what I want to say? Does it convey any meaning? Listen to your speech and mark the words that find their way into your vocabulary. You know, my mother, who died 21 years ago today, so I'll honor her with this story of her wonderful, open humanness and the ability to make fun of herself. She used to jokingly say her favorite word was shit. People laughed, and my mother used it as her explosive expletive, her word of frustration. And guess what? Now, of course, it comes flying out of my mouth every time I stub my toe. But couldn't it as easily be rats or shish? You know, my spouse's father used to say gads, used to go golfing with him, and when he blew it, I probably. When I blew it on the golf course, I probably said shit. And he always said gads. I like gads. Gentle speech is speech that brings people together rather than dividing them. It is helpful, compassionate, and considerate of people's feelings. Speaking in ways that bring other people together is opposite to our normal human tendency. We tend to divide others in order to bring bring people around to our side, right? Attaching ourselves to expectations. We say, did you hear what he said about you? Or we say, did you hear what Trump said to someone you, you know, voted for and supported him? I'm also guilty of this divisive speech. It isn't so long ago that I jumped on the bandwagon to gossip about a professional associate. I'm not sure why. Maybe I wanted to reassure myself that I was right in feeling anger or frustration with this person. So the longer the group talked about her, the better I felt? I don't know. Maybe I thought I would make them like me more. See, I I think we talk many times to be liked. I honestly don't know why I do it, and I know it's wrong for me to do it, because it really can't help my situation, their situation, or the piece person being gossiped about. So why do we talk like that? The media that surrounds us is full of that kind of divisive speech. You know, we, we it's, it's everywhere. Social media, cable news, talk shows, reality TV, radio talk, whatever. It's all about exposing how bad, how wrong, how stupid, how illegal, illegal, how liberal, how conservative someone or some group is in hopes of generating this response that I call it a coliseum-like mob mentality. It's, we gotta get them. You know, it, when it's done in news, it's not journalism, but it gets ratings. Yet as Absurd as it seems to most, it seeps into our consciousness like poison gas or a virus in an email attachment. We don't think we're affected until we drop over or the computer won't boot up. You know, even if we don't watch or read the stuff, people around us are talking in the same divisive language or talking about the divisiveness. Just listen, get familiar with it, and ask yourself if you do it too. You would be surprised at how much divisiveness you don't even pay attention to anymore because it seems to be the backbeat of our culture. It's in your mind somewhere, and remember, your mind is what creates your world. The next practice on these four practices is to speak meaningfully, meaningfully, or refrain from idle talk. It is making sure what you're saying has relevance to you or to the person you're speaking to. That automatically disqualifies talk about celebrities, political figures, sports stars, how much weight a mutual friend gained, and a whole lot of what we talk about every day. Another of my teachers said that the teachings characterize useless or idle talk as, and I love this, quote, willing Willingly and happily engaging in wasteful conversations about sex, crimes, war, and politics. Well, that pretty much covers it, doesn't it? And it pretty much describes what America wakes up to, goes to sleep to, eats lunch to, eats dinner to, works out to, and everything in between. We talk about it, And when we talk about it, you know, we end up embellishing or making it even worse to to sort of like get someone's attention, kind of like the child's game of telephone. You know, I know I can jump right into a conversation about a political situation or figure, especially if I'm not too pleased. I just love to get myself all worked up about it and get all the people around me all worked up about it. And I see that many of my friends and associates do the same thing. Why? Why? Isn't there more purpose to life to discuss than that? You know, talking in general, just the act of talking, robs you of focus on your own intention, robs you of your concentration, robs you of your energy. Anyone who's had the experience of creating something totally understands this. You know, in the planning stages of a creative work, you know, a poem, a painting, or even a new business idea, We instinctively protect that creative energy, that creative spark, by not speaking of it until the plan or artwork or project is fully formed in our own minds. Because we know it'll leak too much of the energy out. You know, it'll extinguish the spark. The rule should probably be to talk only from a sense of purpose. Smaller purpose or larger, more universal purpose. Speak when there is a purpose for you to speak. If it can help someone, or they need to know it, it won't hurt them, then that's a good rule. You know, the Buddha said, if he is called to tell what he knows, he answers, if he knows nothing, I know nothing. And if he knows, he answers, I know. Period. End of sentence. See, the direct result from right speech is meaningful communication that is naturally friendly and amiable towards others. If one cannot say something useful, one should keep quote-unquote noble silence. You know, an example of noble silence is a story about a Roshi or a Zen master and his student enjoying a beautiful morning. The student says, What a beautiful morning, the Roshi responds. Yes, but what a pity to say so. You know, I think right speech is really more about listening, those big Buddha ears, than speaking. Not the kind of listening that most of us do. You know that kind of listening. Someone's telling you a story or replaying some information. and You're partially listening, but the rest of your mind is formulating a response another story, a better fact, supporting evidence, whatever. Again, check what that says about your view, right view, and about your intent, right intent. If you do that like we all do, right, or maybe it's just me, your view must be that that's their story, that's their experience, not mine. See, mine's more important. I better tell mine. Catch the duality and catch what that says about your intention what are you for when you're formulating that response you know what is your intention is it to one up outdo challenge you know unless it's pure sufo- support for them and their story as you would want to be supported maybe a response isn't necessary i know nothing check this in your conversations you know both native american and zen teachings use the term, quote, bear witness, unquote. Bearing witness to our lives in every second is a wonderful practice. Bearing witness is about experiencing life as it is, not as you would like it to be, colored by your expectations, but as it is. This is a more subtle aspect of right speech, an action resulting from incorrect thought. It is the lie that refuses to accept reality as it is, was, or will be. That reality or suchness, as they say in Zen teachings, just is. You know, a Buddhist scholar, Archie Baum, writes, quote, Any assertion or willingness to assert that things are or should be other than they are or are going to be other than they are is a lie. Unwillingness to accept things as they are is the basis of lying, and any expression of that unwillingness is wrong speech, unquote. You know, meditation is about bearing witness. So if you meditate, you've practiced bearing witness. If you have an itch when you are meditating, you bear witness to the itch, and you don't scratch it. Then you observe how the itch goes away naturally without being scratched. If you have a thought about what to eat for breakfast or what you will say to a co-worker while you're meditating, you bear witness. You don't chase the thought away and you don't get up and write down what you're going to say, or you don't get up and have breakfast. You watch it ebb like a wave in the ocean. If we have an urge to speak, maybe we should watch it, bear witness to it, rather than give it expression immediately. I think in our Western culture, we are hardwired to respond to everything that happens to us or around us with either activity or speech. It's almost uh, nearly impossible to deprogram ourselves from that sort of impulse or urge. Even in situations where there is absolutely nothing we can do, we still impulsively try to do or say something. But sometimes non-action is the smartest action. And sometimes not speaking is a better course than speaking. In other words, zip it. As you can see, I personally know how hard this path is. My speech is many times not right. And my biggest problem is too much of it. As this podcast is, is definitely being testimony to, because I said it may be the longest podcast and I think it's going to be. So, I admit, this zip-it part is difficult for me. But that's why it's practice. A very important practice. We stray from right speech all the time and we feel entirely justified in doing so. The people in your world will support you in wrong speech every day. You will be enticed into wrong speech probably a hundred times a day. And if you try to keep to that right speech you won't find a lot of support for your actions so this practice will be difficult but i promise to try harder if you do and that means not just refraining from wrong speech but f- refraining from listening to wrong speech or approving of wrong speech however tacitly you know the people at launch facebook twitter all social media tv magazines check it is it true is it harsh is it divisive, even subtly? Is it gossip? Is it unnecessary? Are you speaking to help, or are you speaking to pump up or defend your own ego? See, that's the practice, and it's a challenge. I will close with a saying I think many of you have probably heard before, or many times before, and there's much debate over who the author is, so I'm not going to give you the author, but the quote investigator's site online says, they believe it was evolved over many decades, but points at a really cool aspect of the saying we've probably all, already all heard, and it's sometimes attributed to Emerson or the Buddha. But the, the cool uh, aspect of, of the thing that this uh, quote investigator pointed out, it said that the five of the key words in this saying, words, actions, thoughts, characters, and habits, have initial letters that can spell the term WATCH, W-A-T-C-H. That is, if you switch around, the use of the habits and characters. So I think it's a great mantra to practice the complete eightfold path with. WATCH. The saying is, let us be mindful of our thoughts, for they become our words. Our words, for they become our actions. Our actions, for they become our habits. Our habits, for they become our character. And our character, for it becomes our destiny. So that's it for today's episode. Thank you for joining me on this long speaking journey of not speaking so much. If you like this podcast, please consider supporting the work through ratings, reviews, or a donation on my website, everyday-buddhism.com. And until next time, keep making your everydays better.